Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. It's been some time, but it's very good to be back with you recording a new episode, episode 28. Or we could say after this extended break that it's season two, episode one, perhaps. But uh, it's very nice to be back, to be on the road to recovery. I've had uh, some health problems over the past couple of months, but I'm on the road to recovery and uh, give thanks to God for that and uh, able to do the research and uh, start recording once again. And I hope to get back to a regular schedule of recording podcasts and uh, bringing new information and uh, new insights and uh, doing that on a regular basis, if the Lord permits. So this episode, episode 28, I'm going to be speaking about uh, a man who had a very great impact in his time, and that impact has continued until the present day. And when we think specifically about the issue of human sexuality, and when we think about marriage, and we think about the acceptance of homosexuality and alternative lifestyles, quote-unquote, and the, the whole issue of gender, as opposed to sex, that that there are multiple genders, that gender exists on a spectrum. We need to understand where this comes from, and we need to understand the roots of it. Where, where does this idea come from that, that sexuality exists on a spectrum, for example? We'll get into that in more detail. Where, where, does, where have the, the acceptance of homosexuality and transsexualism. Where have these things come from? What are the roots of this? And in large part, we need to look back to Alfred Kinsey and the Kinsey Report, what's known as the Kinsey Report. Uh, The Kinsey Report right here, this large book for those who are watching on Rumble, uh, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male by Alfred Kinsey, Bordell Pomeroy, and Clyde Martin published originally in 1948, this very large tome, uh, which is which makes for, in part, interesting reading, uh, in part, very disturbing reading, and then, in large part, very tedious reading. But uh, be that as it may, this book sold hundreds of thousands of copies uh, in the late 1940s and the 1950s. And then, uh, several years later, Kinsey and his group published Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, which was not as successful, but at the same time also uh, made uh, made waves in American society and throughout the world. So I want to begin by talking about Alfred Kinsey and who was Alfred Kinsey. Well, Alfred Kinsey got his start as a zoologist uh, and he studied bugs. And according to the, the mythos surrounding Alfred Kinsey, uh, he began his work of uh, sexual, in, the, in the, the area of sexology, uh, doing sexual research. He began that work uh, after he had been requested to do a course, uh, like a, almost like a marriage preparation course at a university. And he discovered, apparently, that there wasn't a lot of information available 
And this led him to the idea that, well, what we need is uh, some intensive research on human sexuality. Now, that's, that's the mythology. That's how he explained it. But as we'll see, uh, the truth is actually somewhat different. He began, uh, as I said, as a zoologist studying gall wasps, and uh, he moved on to become very well known as a sex researcher. And as we look at Kinsey's biography from biography.com, I'll just go through uh, a little bit of this. He was born in 1894 uh, in New Jersey, the oldest of three children in a devout Methodist family. So his mother described him as shy and soft-spoken. 1912, he graduated as valedictorian of his high school class. Uh, He worked to fund his undergraduate education while attending Baudouin College, graduated magna cum laude with the Bachelor of Science in Biology and Psychology in 1916. 1920, he received his doctorate in biology from Harvard, and he also met his future wife at a zoology department picnic. Now, his career as an educator, he accepted a job as a professor in zoology at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. He was a specialist in botany and insects, and through his research, he established himself as the number one authority on the gall wasp, which we all know, studying gall wasps gall wasps will uh, inevitably make you an expert in human sexuality. So from 1926 to 1929, he took field trips all over the country with his students, collected tens of thousands of gall wasp specimens along the way, focused on categorizing and numbering his specimens, but he longed to take his scientific investigation a step further. Turning his focus to the questions of evolution and natural selection, in 1930, a year after he was promoted to full professor, he published his findings in a paper called The Gall Wasp Genus Synops, A Study in the Origin of the Species. The next section is on sexual behavior studies, which is obviously what Kinsey is best known for. In the 1930s, Kinsey agreed to teach a marriage course. When his students started to ask him questions about sex, he realized that there was very little scientific data on the matter. He decided to apply the principles of scientific research toward the topic of sexual behavior. In 1938, he launched a sex studies program. In the early 1940s, He procured funding from the National Research Council and the Rockefeller Foundation's medical division, and we'll speak more about that. In 1947, Kinsey and his research assistants became incorporated under the name the Institute for Sex Research Incorporated. In 1948, he published his first book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. He based the book on more than 10,000 interviews, during which men and women of all ages provided candid answers to personal questions about their sexual feelings and behaviors. The book quickly sold close to 500,000 copies. Kinsey used the royalties from the sales of his book to do more research. He came out with a sequel called Sexual Behavior in the Human Female in 1953, but it didn't sell as well as his first book. Because Kinsey's research dealt openly with human sexuality during a time when the topic was taboo, his work was the subject of much controversy. During the course of his study, Kinsey was subjected to anti-communist investigations, loss of funding, and a lawsuit by U.S. Customs over a collection of erotic, or we could say pornographic, photos. 
Nevertheless, Kinsey's Institute for Sex Research still survives today under the new title, the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. So in preparation for this podcast, there were two books in particular that I used as my sources. First, of course, was Sexual Behavior in the Human Male by Kinsey. And then the second book is was this one. Uh, for those of you who are watching, uh, you can see the cover here, Stolen Honor, Stolen Innocence, How America Was Betrayed by the Lies and Sexual Crimes of a Mad Scientist, scientist in quotation marks. And the author of this book is Judith Reisman, or Reisman, uh, PhD. An excellent book, very highly detailed, I highly recommend it, although uh, there are some parts in here that are extremely disturbing. But that's because some of the parts of the study that Kinsey did were extremely disturbing in themselves. And recording, uh, reporting on Kinsey's life and on his studies and the way he, that he and others did research, uh, they were criminal, in fact, involving abusive children uh, as they studied and gathered data, supposedly, on the sexual uh, experiences or, or sexual habits of children, adolescents, and uh, even infants. So there's there's some very disturbing material in there, which was never reported on in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, and rarely reported on since then, as uh, Kinsey's reputation has been protected. So Beginning with uh, some quotes and some, some introductory points from Judith Reisman uh, from Stolen Honor and Stolen Innocence, uh, she writes that the Kinsey myth, the official version that Kinsey was prevailed upon by his students to offer a sex education class, was part of a larger mythology of the disinterested scientist, the person with no axe to grind. No vested interest, no desire to influence policy one way or the other. A kind of simple 19th century empiricist who is just collecting, assembling, and presenting data. A Victorian metric-minded, morally neutral, totally dispassionate investigator who simply sees a hole in the literature to just serve his students and science. Now, this is clearly not true. Everybody comes into their studies with uh, presuppositions, as we've seen repeatedly. We all have presuppositions. We all have a starting point. Uh, we all have basic beliefs that we work with from the very beginning, even prior to doing whatever investigation it is that we're doing. So, for example, as I began to study this issue and study the history, I obviously come at this from a Christian perspective, specifically from a Reformed Christian perspective, with my own uh, life experience, with my own beliefs, uh, my own understanding of the world and understanding of history and the meaning of history and the progress of history. And I bring that into the research that I do. But Kinsey claimed that he had none of these things. And in the introduction to sexual behavior in the human male, the person who wrote the introduction said this. He began speaking, living creatures uh, possess three basic characteristics or capacities, growth, adaptation, and reproduction. 
In human biology, the reproductive function has been the least and the last studied scientifically. To the National Research Council's Committee for Research on Problems of Sex belongs the credit for sponsoring a more significant series of research studies on sex than has been accomplished perhaps by any other agency. Among these studies, studies, the findings of Dr. Alfred C. Kinsey and his associates at Indiana University deserve attention for their extent, their thoroughness, and their dispassionate objectivity. And I highlighted this sentence at the conclusion of the paragraph. Dr. Kinsey has studied sex phenomena of human beings as a biologist would examine biological phenomena, and the evidence he has secured is presented from the scientist's viewpoint without moral bias or prejudice derived from current taboos. So he's coming at this with absolutely no bias and no prejudice, according to the writer of the introduction. And now to Kinsey's own words. For some time now, once again reading a quote from the book, there has been an increasing awareness among many people of the desirability of obtaining data about sex which would represent an accumulation of scientific fact completely divorced from questions of moral value and social custom, as if that were a possibility to completely divorce your studies and your findings from these cultural, religious, moral issues. Continuing, practicing physicians find thousands of their patients in need of such objective data. Psychiatrists and analysts find that a majority of their patients need help in resolving sexual conflicts that have arisen in their lives. An increasing number of persons would like to bring an educated intelligence into the consideration of such matters as sexual adjustments in marriage, the sexual guidance of children, the premarital sexual adjustments of youth, sex education, sexual activity activities which are in conflict with the mores, and problems confronting persons who are interested in the social control of behavior through religion, custom, and the forces of law. Now, here we see a bias already at play because he talks about persons who are interested in the social control of behavior through religion, custom, and the forces of law. So characterizing those who have religious beliefs about sexuality and, sexu and uh, sexual morality as people who are interested in the social control of behavior through religion, as if that, that were all there, there was to it. And he continues, Before it is possible to think scientifically on any of these matters, more needs to be known about the actual behavior of people and about the interrelationships of that behavior with the biologic and social aspects of their histories. And then when he talks about the objectives of the present study, the 1948 study, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, he says this, the present study then represents an attempt to accumulate an objectively determined body of fact of sex, about sex which strictly avoids social or moral interpretations of the fact. Each person who reads this report will want to make interpretations in accordance with his understandings of moral values and social significances. But that is not part of the scientific method. And indeed, scientists have no special capacities for making such evaluations. Now, it's interesting, as we'll see later, that Kinsey did not follow his own procedure here because he goes on to make recommendations 
Uh, he goes on to speak as though he has some special ca- uh, capacity to make these eval- evaluations, talking about the moral values and social significance, legal issues surrounding sexuality, all of which made a serious uh, impact, which made a, had, had a lot of influence on society from the 1950s onwards, leading to in large part, the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s, uh, which has continued until today. Now, he goes on to speak about what, why there, there had not been such wonderful studies as the study that, that he and, and his colleagues uh, undertook uh, in the past. He says, hitherto, There have not been sufficient answers to these questions, for human sexual behavior represents one of the least explored segments of biology, psychology, and sociology. Scientifically, more has been known about the sexual behavior of some of the farm and laboratory animals. In our Western European-American culture, sexual responses, more than any other physiologic activities, have been subject to religious evaluation, social taboo, and formal legislation. It is obvious that the failure to learn more about human sexual activity is the outcome of the influence which the custom and the law have had upon scientists as individuals, and of the not immaterial restrictions which have been imposed upon scientific investigations in this field. And so he he speaks about the the way in which the the taboos which uh, he speaks about often of a society, the morals of a society, have had this these negative repercussions and have led to a lack of study of these issues, which is a horrible thing for him. Uh, and, and he writes much, a lot about this. And he goes on to speak about the, the, the way that further study of sexuality will also have an impact on the laws of a nation. And he says, it is ordinarily said that criminal law is designed to protect property and to protect protect persons. And if society's only interest in controlling sex behavior were to protect persons, then the criminal codes concerned with assault and battery should provide adequate protection. The fact that there is a body of sex laws which are apart from the laws protecting persons is evidence of their distinct function, namely that of protecting custom. Just because they have this function, sex customs and the sex laws seem more significant and are defended with more emotion than the laws that concern property or person. The failure of the scientist to go further than he has in studies of sex is undoubtedly a reflection of society's attitudes in this field. So again, Kinsey said previously, as we read, that a scientist cannot comment on these uh, moral issues because that's outside of the the realm of the scientist. And then he goes on throughout the book to make these comments. So not following his own procedure. And he goes on to say this, and he makes a number of uh, recommendations uh, as in, in terms of how the findings of the, the Kinsey report should be used in the various spheres of society. He says, he says, the administrations of penal and correctional institutions naturally questioned whether their inmates would be disturbed if we attempted 
to secure sex histories from them. However, a number of institutions have now cooperated and others have extended invitations to work with their populations. Institutional heads, judges of courts, parole and probation officers, and police officers have expressed a considerable interest in the bearing of this research on problems of law enforcement. The inmate populations in these institutions have voluntarily cooperated in splendid fashion. From this material, we shall ultimately publish a volume on the legal aspects of sexual behavior and one on the problems of sexual adjustment within institutions. He also speaks about other social applications, and specifically in terms of the issue of homosexuality. And he writes this, he says, It is obvious that social interpretations of the homosexual behavior of any individual may be materially affected by a consideration of what is now known about the behavior of the population as a whole, thanks to his study. Social reactions to the homosexual have obviously been based on the general belief that a deviant individual is unique and as such needs special consideration. And this is the part that I highlighted here. When it is recognized that the particular boy who is discovered in homosexual relations in school, the businessman who is having such activity, and the institutional inmate with a homosexual record are involved in behavior that is not fundamentally different from that had by a fourth to a third of all of the rest of the population, the activity of the single individual requires a somewhat different social significance. And there's a lot of this in the Kinsey Report. Because what he seeks to show is that sexual deviance, deviant sexual behavior, uh, adulterous behavior, husbands cheating on their wives, wives cheating on their husbands, premarital sex, uh, various kinds of uh, sexual activities which had very much been frowned upon and considered to be immoral and damaging to society, were far more common than had been previously believed. And as you see, you'll, you'll see, if you, look, if you look in the Kinsey Report, you'll see a number of tables uh, where, where the numbers have been tabulated and the percentages have been given. How many people, how many men have uh, participated in sex before marriage? Uh, how many men have participated in various, I'm not going to get into details here, uh, in various different sexual perversions, we could say. Uh, how many of them have done unusual things? Uh, how many have uh, actually participated in uh, child abuse and various other sexual activities? And according to Kinsey's report, the numbers were way higher than previously believed. Therefore, those who often speak out against these things and these kinds of behaviors, uh, Kinsey implies, are hypocrites, generally. They're doing it themselves, but they're trying to keep other people from doing it, uh, doing it uh, for themselves and participating in these behaviors. And therefore, we often hear uh, those who are most uh, vocal against uh, sexual deviancy or probably sexual deviance themselves. And, and we'll see a little bit more about this as well. And Kinsey continues about an, another uh, part of society. He says, Community gossip and reactions to rumors of homosexual activity in the history of some member of the community 
would probably be modified if it were kept in mind that the same individual may have a considerable heterosexual element in his history as well. The social worker, who is inclined to label a particular boy or older male in her caseload as homosexual, because he is known to have had some such activity, should keep in mind that there is every gradation between complete homosexuality and complete heterosexuality. And here we see the influence that Kinsey has had on uh, the the whole ideology of gender and the fact that the, or the idea, not, not the fact, but the idea or the theory that gender exists in a continuum and that sexuality exists in a continuum. So you end up with the acronym, the LGBTQ2S, uh, plus whatever the acronym keeps getting longer and longer because there is a, a gradation, supposedly, uh, and a, a variation. There's, you can't just say there's two or three options. He continues, administrators in institutions, officials in the Army and Navy, and many other persons in charge of groups of males may profitably consider the balance between the heterosexual and the homosexual in an individual's history rather than the homosexual aspects alone. He goes on to speak about the court system, the justice system, and he says the judge who is considering the case of the male who has been arrested for homosexual activity should keep in mind that nearly 40% of all the other males in the town could be arrested at some time in their lives for similar activity. Hmm and that 20 to 30% of the unmarried males in that town could have been arrested for homosexual activity that had taken place within that same year. Now, just think about that for a moment. According to Kinsey's research, nearly 40% of all males, uh, this is universally speaking, have participated at some point in their lives in homosexual activity. And 20 to 30% of, of men unmarried men, had participated in homosexual activity within the last year. Now, think about if that, if that jives with your own experience and, and what you know, or, or if this is something that we should accept. And where did these numbers come from? And he says, the court might also keep in mind that the penal or mental institution to which he may send the mail has something between 30 and 85% of its inmates engaging in the sort of homosexual activity which may be involved in the individual case before him. And he continues, On the other hand, the judge who dismisses the homosexual case that has come before him or places the boy or adult on probation may find himself the subject of attack from the local press, which charges him with releasing dangerous perverts, between quotation marks, upon the community. Law enforcement officers can utilize the findings of scientific studies of human behavior only to the extent that the community will back them. Until the whole community understands the realities of human homosexual behavior, there is not likely to be much change in the official handling of individual cases. And again, we see Kinsey in the beginning of his book, saying that these are not things that, that scientists should be commenting on. They have no expertise in these areas. Uh, they deal with facts and not with the application of those facts. And it's up to the reader to deal with the application of those facts in uh, actual uh, experience in society. But he goes on to 
do exactly what he said he wasn't going to do and to speak about what the community needs to do in response to the results of his research. And again, continuing on this same theme, Kinsey goes on to write, there are those who will contend that the immorality of homosexual behavior calls for its suppression, no matter what the facts are concerning the incidence and frequency of such activity in the population. Some have demanded that homosexuality be completely eliminated from society by a concentrated attack upon it at every point, and the treatment, between quotation marks, or isolation of all individuals with any homosexual tendencies. Whether such a program is morally desirable is a matter on which a scientist is not qualified to pass judgment. Well, he goes on to do just that. But but whether, he continues, such a program is physically feasible is a matter for scientific determination. The evidence that we now have on the incidence and frequency of homosexual activity indicates that at least a third of the male population would have to be isolated from the rest of the community if all those with any homosexual capacities were to be so treated. It means that at least 13% of the male population, rating 4 to 6 on the heterosexual homosexual scale, remember that sliding scale, we can't say that that uh, homosex- pure homosexuals exist and pure heterosexuals exist, but there's a sliding scale between heterosexual and homosexual, uh, which he created this number system for. But he's, it means, to, to go back to what he said, that, that at least 13% of the male population would have to be institutionalized and isolated if all persons who are predominantly homosexual were to be handled in that way. Since about 34% of the total population of the United States are adult males, this means that there are about six and a third million males in the country who would need such isolation. Once again, he speaks about this continuum, this division between homosexuals and heterosexuals. And he says, finally, it should be emphasized again that the reality is a continuum with individuals in the population occupying not only the seven categories which are recognized here, but every gradation between each of the categories as well. Nevertheless, it does no great injustice to the fact to, gr- to, the fact to group the population as indicated above, which is uh, a grouping in a, in a uh, chart. From all of this, it should be evident that one is not warranted in recognizing merely two types of individuals, heterosexual and homosexual and that the characterization of the homosexual as a third sex fails to describe any actuality. Now, you may have heard numbers being cited, percentages being cited, saying that 10% of the population is homosexual. And the question is, where does that number come from, and is that number accurate? Well, the number comes from Kinsey's report. He says 10%, and this is, this is part of a longer list, uh, but I only just uh, highlighted these three uh, percentages. He said 10% of the males are more or less exclusively homosexual, that is, rate five or six on this sliding scale, for at least three years between the ages of 16 and 55. This is one male in 10 in the white male population. 8% of the males are exclusively homosexual, that is, they rate a six 
for at least three years between the ages of 16 and 55. This is one male in every 13. And finally, 4% of the white males are exclusively homosexual throughout their lives after the onset of adolescence. So these are some of the percentages that Kinsey came up with. And he goes on to speak about his methodology. And, and this is where we really run into one of the problems with Kinsey's study, which is the methodology that he used in his study. And he, he speaks about it, uh, and, and he claims that his methodology was sound. And he says, if individuals are collected in a fashion which eliminates all bias in their choosing, individuals to, to, who would participate in the study, and in a fashion which includes material from every type of habitat and from the whole range of the species, it should be possible to secure a sample which, after measurement and classification, will indicate the frequency with which each type of variant occurs in each local population or in the species as a whole. And you can see that, that Kinsey is dealing with human beings as uh, members of the animal kingdom and studying them as he studied gall wasps, at least in his mind. He says, if the sample is adequate and the generalizations should apply not only to the individuals which were actually measured, but to those which were never collected and which, which were never measured at all. Obviously, the correctness of such an extension of the observed data depends upon the size of the sample and upon the quality of the sample. And the capacity of the taxonomist is to be measured by the skill he demonstrates in choosing and securing that sample. And then he says that the next two chapters would deal with the methodology, the techniques by which the material of the study was obtained. The question is, and this is what he's, what he's saying is this, in order to do a proper study, we need to have a large enough sample, we need to have a representative sample, uh, and we need to have a high quality sample. The question is, did Kinsey and his colleagues have this kind of sample? Did they have a large enough sample? Did they have a quality sample? And were there inherent biases in the sample itself, which skewed, radically skewed the numbers that they came up with? Uh, the fact is, is that the, the, the size of the sample and the quality of the sample were sadly lacking in Kinsey's study. And now going back to Judith Riesman's book, she said this, she said, Kinsey, in his studies of sexual behavior, violated all three of the precepts necessary to scientific procedure. He denied flatly and repeatedly that he had any hypothesis insisting that he merely, in his words, presented the facts. Now this, uh, as far as I know, even goes against the scientific method, which is where the scientist begins with a hypothesis, where Kinsey says, I didn't begin with a hypothesis. I began with no preconceived notions about what I, was going, what I wanted to find or what I was going to find. But Riesman continues, yet to any observant reader, Kinsey obviously had a two-pronged hypothesis. He vigorously promoted, juggling his figures to do so, a hedonistic, animalistic conception of human behavior, while at the same time he consistently denounced all biblical and conventional conceptions of sexual behavior. He refused to publish his basic data. He kept secret not only his hypotheses, but also refused to present the basic facts on which his conclusions rested. 
He also refused to reveal the questionnaire, which was the basis for all of his facts. In addition, it is possible to derive conclusions opposite to Kinsey's from his own data. Now, it's not only later evaluators like Judith Reisman who uh, called into question Kinsey's methodology and uh, the results of his study, because it, it was even uh, also uh, some of his contemporaries, not many, but some. And what was, the, what was the, the largest or one of the largest problems in the sample of, of uh, subjects that Kinsey and his team interviewed? Well, it had to do with the heavy weight of institutionalized people that were studied. Obviously, uh, prison, a prison population is a, quite literally a captive audience. Uh, and if you can get into a prison, you can get a complete sample within the prison. But obviously, if you're going to weight your study towards people, men specifically, who are in prison and who have lived a criminal lifestyle uh, and have grown up in, in uh, situations, in, uh, in broken homes, in fatherless families, uh, who have been uh, juvenile, uh, involved in the juvenile penal system, uh, who have been involved in criminal activities for a large part of their lives, obviously you're gonna, going to come up with some very different results than you would if you were doing a study of the general population. And Judith Reisman writes the following. She says, Kinsey associate Paul Gebhard explained that even the prison sample was heavily weighted towards sexual disorder since the Kinsey team specifically sought the worst sex offenders. And she quotes Gebhardt. At the Indiana State Farm, we had no plan of sampling. We simply sought out sex offenders and after a time avoided the more common types of offense, for example, statutory rape, and directed our efforts toward the rarer types. In the early stages of the research, when much, of inter much interviewing was being done at Indiana correctional, correctional institutions, Dr. Kinsey did not view the inmates as a discrete group that should be differentiated from people outside. Instead, he looked upon the institutions as reservoirs of potential interviewees, literally captive subjects. This viewpoint resulted in there being no differentiation in our 1948 volume between persons with and without prison experience. The great majority of the prison group was collected omnivorously without any sampling plan. We simply interviewed all who volunteered, and when this supply of subjects was exhausted, we solicited other inmates essentially at random. Kinsey never kept a record of refusal rates, the proportion of those who were asked for an interview, but who refused. Now, the journal Lancet, the medical journal, uh, dealt with uh, Kinsey's methodology in the March 2nd, 1991 issue. And there, they said that there were three, this article said that there were three problems with Kinsey's methodology. And I'll just list those problems. First of all, any questionnaire survey in a normally private area like sexuality is subject to bias from differences in those who respond and those who refuse. And there is no ready means of checking that information. 
Number two, Kinsey et al. questioned an unrepresentative proportion of prison inmates and sex offenders in a survey of, quote, normal sexual behavior. And thirdly, Kinsey's methodology also involved unethical, possibly criminal, and I would say very definitely criminal, observations of children. Uh, And there are some tables in the book which detail sexual responses in children that could not have been received apart from illegal activity and child, what we can only call child molestation. But the, the funny thing is, is that when the book was published, and for many years afterwards, this was never called into question by the scientific community, when it's obvious and when it it would have been something, it should have been something that jumped out at people. Like, how did you get this information? How did you get information on sexual uh, responses of three-year-olds, if not from child molesters? Which is exactly where Kinsey got that information. And it's shocking, but it's true. So Kinsey's behavior in this and many other areas was was horrendous. One of the the contemporary critics of Kinsey's study was Abraham Maslow. Abraham Maslow, uh, perhaps you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, It's probably what he's best known for, a psychologist of global acclaim in the 1940s. Uh, in, In the volume on the sexuality of the human male, Kinsey claimed to be indebted to Maslow for the latter's efforts to preclude volunteer bias. Maslow was a libertarian member of the Humanist Society, and he was an early fan of Kinsey's research. And he scrutinized volunteerism in studies of human sexuality. So that means when a a study is done and the people who are interviewed are volunteers. So they're people who say, oh, yeah, I'll participate in that study. Sure. An advertisement is put uh, in a college newspaper or whatever. And the, the, the people who participate in the study are those who volunteer for it. So... Continuing about Maslow, in 1942, he had reported that any study, and this is a quote from him, any study in which data are obtained from volunteers will always have a preponderance of aggressive, high-dominance people, and therefore will show a falsely high percentage of non-virginity, masturbation, promiscuity, homosexuality, etc. in the population. So not only was the problem that a large percentage of Kinsey's uh, subjects, interview subjects, were institutionalized people, whether in prisons or mental hospitals or uh, hospitals for those with developmental disabilities, the mentally handicapped. But the other problem was, is that a large percentage of the participants in the study were volunteers and volunteer. Uh, 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 when there is a large percentage of volunteers in the study, the results will be already naturally skewed because someone who has led a moral life, who has not uh, been involved in uh, sexual aberrations, who has not participated in uh, various kinds of sexual immorality, is not going to be the kind of person who will say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll willingly share my information with you. Sure, I love to talk about this stuff. No, there's a sense of modesty that many people have. They're not going to share this information and so that their own experiences will not be included in this larger set of data. Whereas a person who's proud of their 
uh, sexual dalliances of their sexual past, uh, who has no no care in the world about it, or, or who's somewhat of an exhibitionist, perhaps, will gladly and willingly participate in this study and perhaps uh, get some kind of kick out of doing it. So that's a problem. That's a problem that Abraham Maslow recognized. Now, the question is, how did, uh, how did Kinsey deal with that? But first of all, I'm going to read a quote from Abraham Maslow. He says, when I warned him, Kinsey, about volunteer error, he disagreed with me and was sure that his random selection would be okay. So what we did was to cook up a joint crucial test. I put the heat on all my five classes at Brooklyn College and made a real effort to get them all to sign up to be interviewed by Kinsey. We had my dominance test scores for all of them. And then Kinsey gave me the names of the students who actually showed up for the interviews. As I expected, the volunteer error was proven, and the whole basis for Kinsey's statistics was proven to be shaky. But then he refused to publish it, and refused even to mention it in his books, or to mention anything else that I had written. All my work was excluded from his bibliography. So after a couple of years, I just went ahead and published it myself. Whatever contacts I had with him in his last years were not cordial. He seemed to have changed in character. Now, another, I mentioned that Kinsey uh, dealt with uh, and interviewed institutionalized people, uh, and uh, in particular, prison inmates, uh, people in psychiatric hospitals, and also the developmentally disabled, or as he calls it in the language of the day, the feeble-minded. And he said this, feeble-minded individuals and occasionally some other persons are highly suggestible. Then it becomes particularly important to avoid suggesting answers and important to test all answers for consistency. So claiming some kind of scientific detachment and scientific accuracy, uh, a lack of bias. We have no bias here. We're not pressuring people into giving certain answers. We don't want to be suggesting uh, certain answers or asking leading questions. Uh, and uh, Kinsey explains this in his uh, section about methodology. But if we look, uh, go back, going back to Judith Reisman's book, she says, another as another example of Kinsey's desperate effort to conjure up seemingly credible statistics, he included his, in his sample an unidentified number of feeble-minded subjects, possibly all males, from the Michigan State Training School at Coldwater. This captive population was part of the Kinsey Institute's 100% group, an unscientific selection devised by Kinsey to offset his team's inability to recruit a cross-section of the population. He refers to the 100% sample and to his feeble-minded group on several occasions, though he carefully avoids reporting how many simpletons he included among his samples of normal males and females. And so uh, these uh, reasoned quotes from Kinsey. Feeble-minded individuals vary considerably in their capacities to remember. It is possible to get a fair record for most feeble-minded individuals whose IQ are not below 50, although interviewing any person with a rating below 70 becomes slow. Each idea must penetrate endless repetition, a vocabulary confined to the simplest of words. With uneducated persons, and particularly with feeble-minded individuals, it is sometimes effective to expose the truth by answering as though he had never given a negative reply. Now, just 
this listen to this in terms of not asking leading questions or or not looking for specific a specific kind of answer and so this is what the interviewer would would say yes i know you have never done that whatever sexual behavior that might be but how old were you the first time that you did it that's like that that proverbial question that's impossible to answer when did you stop beating your wife well, you can't answer that question one way or the other without without uh, uh, implicating yourself in such behavior. So, they they uh, the the, the feeble minded individual gives a response. So the the uh, perhaps the interviewer says, uh, uh, "Have you ever had homosexual sex?" The uh, the interviewee says, "No, I've I've never done that." Uh, but then. The interviewer says in response, yes, I know you've never done that, but how old were you the first time that you did it? So you're dealing with someone who's developmentally disabled in the first place, and then you're asking these leading questions, and you can imagine somebody with a developmental disability saying, oh, well, I guess he's expecting me to say something. Well, I'll just say 12, or whatever the answer might be. Such questioning, Kinsey says, may break down the cover-up of a feeble-minded individual. Now, there's also more in Kinsey's book, and I'm going back to, to Kinsey's book once again, the study, uh, about this process, about the process and the, the actual uh, setup of the interviews and how this was done. And Kinsey writes, problems of interviewing have been particularly important in the present study because of the long-standing taboos, again, back to that word taboos, which make it bad form and for most people socially or legally dangerous to discuss one's sexual activities in public or even in the presence of one's most intimate friends. It is astounding that anyone should agree to expose himself by contributing his sex history to an interviewer whom he has never before met and to a research project whose full significance he, in most instances, cannot begin to understand. Still more remarkable is the fact that many of the histories in the present study have come from subjects who agreed to give histories within the first few minutes after they first met the interviewer. Now, I find this fascinating, that a number, or large number, apparently, of people who were interviewed by Kinsey and his associates, getting a very detailed sexual history, uh, asking all kinds of intimate and very personal questions were people who jumped at the opportunity to participate in such an interview. Obviously, it seems to me, you're going to end up with a very skewed sample of the population if you're dealing with a number of people and getting information from a large number of people who are, are eagerly volunteering for this. I think of myself, I, I would hardly eagerly volunteer uh, for such a, such a study. It's, it's not something, again, you know, you'd speak about taboo or you can speak about acceptable behavior or you can speak about what should remain private and should not be shared with others. When you think about that, if, if a large proportion of the population who thinks in that way, that, that sexual behavior is not something that we talk about uh, publicly, it's not something that we, we talk about frivolously. It's not something that we share with strangers or people that we, that certainly with people that we're not familiar with. Uh, if, and we have difficulty even speaking about it when necessary, 
uh, to close confidants or, or to pastors or elders in the church or, or what have you, or even to our spouses. You can, you can imagine that subjects who agreed to give histories within the first few minutes after they first met the interview are, will provide a very skewed result. And then Kinsey goes on to provide a number of points about the interview process. And, and he, he said number 13 on this list is that they, the interviewer would place the burden of denial on the subject. And again, we see how the, the results are skewed by leading questions. And these are the kinds of questions that uh, if you've ever watched a, a court case uh, or, or an interview in, in an interview room after a, a person is arrested for a crime, uh, you, can, you can see when leading questions are asked and what that leads to. So he wants to place the burden of denial on the subject. And he writes this, the interviewer should not make it easy for a subject to deny his participation in any form of sexual activity. It is too easy to say no if he is simply asked whether he has ever engaged in a particular activity. So uh, we're not going to believe the person if, if, if he says, no, I've never participated in homosexual activity. Or no, I, I never had premarital sex. Or whatever, it may, whatever sexual activity may be. Because the, the presupposition of the interviewer is that, of course, everybody's done it. We always assume that everyone has engaged in every type of activity. Consequently, we always begin by asking when they first engaged in such activity. Again, we go back to that leading question, that, that impossible to answer question. When did, you, when did you stop beating your wife? Well known. We have the same problem here. This places a heavier burden on the individual who is inclined to deny his experience. And since it becomes apparent from the form of our question that we would not be surprised if he had had such experience, there seems to be less reason for denying it. And then he goes on to say, it might be thought that this approach would bias the answer, but there is no indication that we get false admissions of participation uh, in, uh, in these interviews. So those are, those are the problems with the study, and the problems are huge. For, so problems with methodology, uh, problems with the, the, uh, the groups that were the focus of Kinsey's, uh, Kinsey's research, large proportion of prison inmates, uh, people who are institutionalized, uh, the uh, mentally disabled and the mentally ill, and uh, also the volunteer aspects of the study. You're going to get a skewed results whenever you have a study of this type, uh, which relies on volunteers, uh, even though Kinsey wanted to, wanted to claim that he had 100% participation from groups, which would give a less skewed study. And uh, in the third place, the, the illegal and reprehensible uh, research that was done into sexuality of children, uh, adolescents, and infants. And so, so uh, in all of these areas, this, this study should have been widely rejected by the scientific community. But as we saw in the previous episode about Margaret Mead, how the Margaret Mead's research was, was unquestioningly accepted by, this, by the social scientific community, despite the fact that, that, it, that her research was, was terrible uh, and that it didn't uh, reflect reality 
uh, of life in Samoa. And if, if you want to hear more about that, it's in the previous episode. So the same thing happens here. The, the, the scientific, quote-unquote, public, so the social scientists, the, uh, uh, the powers that, that be, the, the intellectual elites have an, had an idea of what they wanted to find, and when Kinsey came out with this idea, they ran with it. But how did this, this tome, which, you know, 500,000 people bought, but I can't imagine that 500,000 people got much further than uh, the introduction. Uh, how did this, this study become such a phenomenon? How did it sell 500,000 copies? And how is it so widely promoted and, and it became widely known? It, uh, there were art, magazine articles written about it. Uh, publicity photographs published of Kinsey and his associates, uh, comics and cartoons written about it, make, trying to trying to bring this the issue of human sexuality uh, into the the mainstream. We could say to make it to make it less threatening in some way. And and Riesman includes a number of examples of that. Well, how did this happen? Well, Riesman writes about Rockefeller's mass communications machine takes Kinsey public. The immense amount, she writes, of public interest in Kinsey's first book supposedly came as a surprise to its authors and publishers. Wow, everybody wants to read this. That is doubtful, however, considering the enormous advance effort to promote it, including efforts of the Rockefeller-connected mass media to effusively hype the book and its culturally corrosive message. Kinsey and his benefactors set in motion massive publicity campaigns preceding release of both the male volume in 1948 and the female volume in 1953. Journalists were briefed and courted, and as publication date approached, wined and dined occasionally at taxpayers' expense. In addition to print advertisements, an unprecedented number of free copies, gratis copies of the first book, primarily targeted, targeting the medical profession, were distributed nationally. Alan Wallace, past president of the American Statistical Association, recalls, yes, the book was promoted commercially in a big way, and they were taking sort of a holier-than-thou attitude, saying, we're not promoting it at all. It's just that the public is naturally interested in the subject. This carefully contrived publicity effort was designed to create an international media sensation that would appear to be spontaneous. Clamor for the book would then be portrayed as proof that Kinsey's claims about America's sexual hypocrisy were valid. After all, it was the first, quote, racy U.S. scholarship in print, and supposedly moral and monogamous men and women would be standing in line to buy it. Parading the book under the respectable cover of science further enhanced the scheme. However, this too was a media-crafted and controlled fantasy. How did this Midwest, bow-tied Midwestern biology professor become a savvy public relations wizard capable of conducting a book promotion rivaling that of a Madison Avenue ad agency? An indication of the answer is found in the record of the Rockefeller Foundation's extensive influence on mass communication. During the late 1930s, writes Christopher Simpson in Science of Coercion, the foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, Quote, believed mass media constituted a uniquely powerful force in modern society for imposing the will of the elite on the masses. According to Simpson, 
Secret psychological war projects to control public opinion were supported by America's tax-exempt foundations. And the same thing is happening today in Great Britain, in Canada, in the United States, which with what are called nudge units, government-funded and controlled and, and, and also funded by, by the foundations, uh, psychological experts who are working to influence public opinion, uh, supported by these foundations. And Reisman continues, for example, campaigns were developed to induce Americans to support U.S. entry into World War II. The Rockefeller Foundation funded communication experts from the field of social science to shape pre- and post-war public attitudes. In the post-war era, this experienced group of operatives turned its attention to our domestic population. So how did Kinsey deal with opposition at the time? Well, Kinsey, by all accounts, appears to not have been a very nice man when he was especially dealing with those who didn't toe the line. Now, Kinsey, Reisman writes, was understandably anxious to downplay the extent to which his quote-unquote research had been based on the experiences of deviants, prisoners, homosexuals in bars and baths, and child molesters. Much of Kinsey's animosity was directed at critics within the scientific community. Scientists, he claimed, quoting Kinsey, have proved as likely as anyone else to become emotionally disturbed at the very notion of research in the area of human sexual behavior in facing facts, with anything like objectivity. A prominent scientist, a leader in science at a great university, and ultimately an important figure in scientific political organization in the national capital, began his review of our first volume by saying, I do not like Kinsey. I do not like the Kinsey Project. I do not like anything about the Kinsey study of sexual behavior. The persons who have been most vociferous, both verbally and in their writing against our undertaking, would include some who honestly believe that ignorance is safer than knowledge in this and presumably many other areas. But the prime objectors have been persons who are most disturbed in their own sexual lives. This we know specifically because we have case histories on some of these individuals. This is, uh, this is Kinsey, and it sounds pretty threatening. Those prime objectors, those people who have, have the most to say negatively about our great and wonderful study and all the results of our studies, they are the ones who are the most disturbed in their own sexual lives. So it's like saying the, the, the person who is homophobic, supposedly homophobic, is someone who has some kind of latent homosexuality in their own lives. It's a person who uh, is, is sublimating their own homosexual tendencies and, and, and moving it uh, in the direction of hatred toward homosexuals or fear of homosexuals or disapproval of homosexuality, the same kind of arguments that are used today. But there's, a, there's an underlying threat here. The prime objectors have been persons who are most disturbed in their own sexual lives. This we know specifically because we have case histories on some of these individuals. So, uh, in other words, uh, be careful. Reisman continues, There were so few scholarly critics of Kinsey at the time that when one raised his head, as did two, uh, two critics, Gorer and Terman, this raised questions about the critic's own sexual life, whether justified or not. 
Christensen quotes Kinsey, hinting at the strain of protecting the critic's sex history. Kinsey says, we, or said, we have guaranteed to keep confidence on each individual history which we have taken in this study. But it must be admitted that it has imposed a terrific strain upon us at times to know the sexual history of some of the persons who have been the bitterest opponents of our sex research, as they would be of any other sex research. Well, it's such a strain for us. We have their sex, sexual history. We know all about them. So it's very, very, very difficult for us to, to have these sexual histories of our opponents. Hmm. Why would it be difficult? Well, would there be the temptation to reveal these sexual histories and to use them as blackmail? Which apparently uh, Kinsey did with his colleagues, with other people who worked with him. Uh, the first thing that he would do was to take their sexual history so he would have this material to hold over their head to ensure that they would remain allies and that they would not step out of line. Such, Reisman writes, was the mindset of the man widely credited with triggering a destructive sexual revolution that has radically altered our nation's morals, culture, and politics. So to conclude, this uh, this episode has already gone over time. I was thinking of dividing it into two parts, but uh, you know you can divide it into two parts yourself and, and watch a half and listen to a half at one time and, and another half the next time instead. But to conclude, I'll conclude with one final quote from Judith Reisman. As with the discredited turn-of-the-century science of phrenology, which entailed measuring bumps on the head to estimate intelligence and other traits, the quote-unquote new academic discipline of sexology is a shaman's trade. Its claims of sound methodology is hokum. No sensitive or sensible person, including a scientist, who understands the dynamics of marriage, real human love, and the absolute trust and commitment they require would propose or participate in perverse studies such as those conducted by Alfred Kinsey and his team. So I'm going to conclude with that statement. There are so many problems, and I, I, I could go on, and I, perhaps I will do another episode about this, this same topic uh, to speak more about Kinsey and Kinsey's life and, and how, much like Margaret Mead, he was directed by his own uh, lifestyle and his own desires in his studies uh, and, the, and in uh, massaging the results of his studies so to, a, to a certain end. Uh, but the, the, the results of the Kinsey report, uh, and the results of the massive propaganda campaign that was waged by the Rockefeller institution, the Rockefeller media, uh, the, the nonprofit organizations, and that, that continues today. Uh, the results of this have been so detrimental to the world's society and how many people are aware of these facts? That that the Kinsey report was such a disaster methodologically, uh, morally, ethically, uh, and that the results should not be trusted. Well, the results are still cited today, and even if they weren't cited today, uh, throughout the 1950s and the 1960s and 1970s, these results led to many changes in laws in the application of laws, the, the punishment for offenders, uh, how uh, child sex offenders were dealt with, child abusers were dealt with, 
the acceptance of uh, pedophilia, uh, homosexuality, uh, the various transsexualism, uh, all of these things were the fruit of Kinsey's work in large part. And so we need to know, as we wonder, like, where on earth did this stuff come from? Like, we, we might think about it ourselves. Like, where did this idea that gender exists on a continuum, where did this come from? Or that 10% of the, of the population is homosexual. Or that homosexuality and heterosexuality exist on this continuum. Or that, that the majority of people have, have participated in, in premarital uh, intercourse or homosexual activity or various other sexual activities. Where, where does this come from? Uh, and the ex- widespread acceptance over the past uh, 70 years now uh, has largely come from uh, Alfred Kinsey, who had an impact on men like Hugh Hefner, the founder uh, of Playboy magazine, who called himself Kinsey's pamphlet- pamphleteer, uh, a very great promoter of Kinsey because Kinsey's ideology lined up perfectly with his and many others. So that's where this comes from. These are the rotten fruits, the rotten roots that lead to the rotten fruits that we're seeing today. And that's something that's important for us to see and to understand because this stuff doesn't come from nowhere. And so I, I would highly recommend for those who are more are interested in, in uh, learning more about this subject, I highly recommend this book, Stolen Honor, uh, Stolen Innocence. I'll put that in front of the camera here. Uh, by Judith Riesman, published by New Revolution Publishers. You can also find it, uh, an earlier edition, uh, called Kinsey, Crimes and Consequences, uh, which was published by the Institute for Media Education. It's basically the same book with a different introduction. So, as I said, if you're interested in more information, check out Judith Riesman's book, uh, which is very informative and and, uh, very disturbing, but at the same time, uh, very uh, necessary to understand the roots of the 20th century sexual revolution, which is still bearing its poisonous fruit today. So on that note, I will close here for now. We've gone to an hour and 10 minutes or so. Uh, and uh, I thank you for sticking with me. And uh, it's been very good to be back and and uh, to be bringing this information. I, my prayer is, as always, that this information will help you uh, and all of us as God's people to live according to uh, the encouragement of uh, Daniel 11, verse 32, to stand firm and to take action, to stand firm against these movements in society, to understand the what is what is happening in our culture, and to also be able to speak prophetically about to our society about what's going on because that is part of our calling as uh, God's prophets, priests, and kings as Christians to speak prophetically. As I heard Pastor Rob Shooten speak about in a sermon recently, which I thought was was so insightful, to speak prophetically to our culture, and we need to be prepared to do that. And, and my hope and my prayer is that this podcast will help you to do that. If you found this helpful, please do share Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify or Anchor or the Rumble Channel. Please do share uh, with your friends and those who you believe uh, will benefit from it. And uh, once again, I pray that this will help us 
to be able to deal with these movements and these developments in our modern society and to stand firm and to take action. Until next time.